The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, number 139 for Sunday, January 27th, 2008. to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. I'm Dave Hamilton, of course. I am here with John Braun. How are you, John? Fantastic, Dave. How are you? I'm good. I was going to say, and I'm here on a snowy Sunday afternoon, but it's only snowy for me. It's, uh, you're not getting anything down there, and we've got about uh, six inches on our way to probably eight, if not more, this evening. So, yeah, You're too far north. I Actually, I think we're in the, exactly the right spot here. I'm actually very happy where we are. <laughs> Ah, yeah, it's Sunday and uh, scheduling and all that good stuff puts us here today, which is a wonderful thing. We've got Time Machine to talk about. We've actually got quite a bit on Time Machine to talk about. Uh, a couple of networking things and then uh, and some of your switcher questions, things that would apply to switchers, things that came from switchers, uh, just general good information for folks that may be new to the platform. So perfect for a Sunday afternoon. It's not easy like Sunday morning, though, right, John? It's just it's, we, we got to work at this, so. Yeah, the only thing I was doing was crying at how many dollars Apple stock had shed. That's right. Well, I'm glad you didn't say you were crying at how many dollars you lost because you really didn't lose anything, right? Uh, no. You lost no. The, the ability to sell at a certain price. Boy, you just, you got to stop, you know, releasing record results. Wall Street just really frowns upon that sort of thing. Well, yeah, Wall Street's kind of having some troubles right now anyway. It's a good time yeah. to refinance your house, though, but that's not the, this isn't the refinance geek, Gab. Is it? Not today. Okay. <laughs> is, that, is that what we're doing tomorrow night? Is that what we had to do the show today? Maybe. Okay. Uh, let's start out with Mike, and not that Mike, this Mike, and see what he has to see what he has to tell us. Hey guys, this is Mike. Uh, had a Mac purchased for me a few months ago, and it came with Tiger. So I purchased Leopard when it came out. I upgraded. Uh, everything was great. And then I decided that I wanted to upgrade my hard drive. Uh, I wanted it a little bigger to have a lot of music and stuff. Um, so I took the computer apart, put the new hard drive in, put everything back together, uh, installed the uh, installed Leopard, and everything installed fine. Um, then I tried to put all my stuff back on the computer using Time Machine. And what would happen is it would get about 28% or something, and then freeze and it would you know I left it all night once and it just stayed at the same place you know all night long so I just had to power off the computer um, and then this, when I tried to, to turn the computer back on it would come up the Apple would come up and then this gray screen would take over and then it would say you need to restart your computer and it would say it in like five different languages and I would have no other option um, so I had to Turn the computer off, take the hard drive back out of the computer, put the original hard drive back in, um, and then reformat the new hard drive as it's connected externally. Uh, and that happened a few times, and I was just wondering what I was doing wrong. Eventually, I had to just not use Time Machine. I had to just, you know, copy my stuff directly on there. But Time Machine, my point is Time Machine didn't work for me. I was just wondering... Uh, what I did wrong, or if it's even possible to back up your stuff using Time Machine and put it on a brand new hard drive. Uh, so that's probably where you should cut me off. All right. Well, we will do that. Uh, all right. So I guess I, in listening to this question this last time, John, I'm, I know we've listened to it before, but I'm a little confused. It sounded like he said he installed Leopard and then tried to restore with Time Machine. And I believe, is that what you got as well, John? Um. I got the order of events was okay. the machine with Tiger, upgraded to Leopard, then used Time Machine. So it sounds like at some point there was a Time Machine backup of okay. the upgraded Leopard right. volume. Well, it, you know, in, in theory, what uh, what Mike set out to do, I, I think, should work fine, right? He he went to backup. He, you know, obviously created the Time Machine, which he would have to be on Leopard to do that. Created the Time Machine backup swap the drive out, went to replace it and restore it. That should work fine. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't unless, and, and you know, when you get those kernel panics, when it tells you to restart in, in six different languages, that that's when the OS has kernel panicked. And often 
Uh, though not always, but oftentimes when that happens, it's a hardware issue, <clears throat> especially if it's happening repeatedly at the same spot. So it, it sounds like perhaps his time machine drive might have uh, uh, might be failing. But uh, especially since when he, he did the copy directly from his old drive to the new drive, it worked just fine. Uh, because Time Machine really is just doing a copy from the Time Machine backup into whatever your your current drive is. So uh, it sounds to me like he's got you know, hardware hardware issues of some sort. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't, you know, give an error. But you know, perhaps the the hard drive may be damaged in a strange way, or the driver, where um. Or I'm sorry, no, it would just be the hard drive that I mean, yeah, it should yeah. say, you know, a hardware problem or make a clicking or you, you may not hear it. It may have been, you know, making a racket, but um, that's kind of rare that it just kind of sits there and, you know, doesn't doesn't uh, quit the copy knowing that there's a, a problem. I mean, that certainly happens when, you know, you're dealing with DVDs, you right. know, warning about blocks and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I, w- I would lean towards bad, uh, bad hardware. All right. Well, it, it, this is a good introduction to uh, just talking about Time Machine here today. We've got a couple of tips, one from uh, actually two from listeners, if you will. And then uh, and we've, we've kind of found some on our own. One thing uh, I, I got a question in my email. I think it was just yesterday from uh, Al, a listener. And uh, Al asked, is there a way? Look, I've copied. I've, I've made Time Machine backups. They're happening automatically. I've got one big file that I was using on my machine and time machine backed it up. I've now removed it from my machine and there's no way that I'll ever want this out of time machine. And it's a multi gigabyte file. Is there any way that I can go and delete this file from my time machine backup so that it's not taking up room on my time machine drive? Cause I know it's going to list, it's going to last there for weeks, if not months, uh, depending on, you know, of course the size. And so my response to Al was go ahead and yes, you can delete it. But make sure, again, it's hard links like we talked about recently. Make sure you delete all the links. Well, Al actually found a better way. And, John, you you confirmed this. Al said uh, if you go to your, your time machine volume and uh, select the file that you want to remove, and then there's a little action menu, the little uh, cogged wheel, if you will. And mm-hmm. when you click on that, it, and you can, you can confirm this. You're on a time machine-capable uh, Mac right now, John. Uh, it gives you a choice to delete all copies from all backups of whatever file that is. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, yes. I'm not in the subject, but yeah, we did it before. Yeah, we did so, it before. So you look okay. at an action menu if you're on anything except, of course, the current view. So any view except now. Got it. And if the file's there, you can, uh, yeah, option saying get rid of all instances of this or all backups. And that that's actually a handy thing to know cause the, because I can see it where, you know, if you've got... Let's say you download some big disk image to, you know, to do some install and you just know that you're not going to need it. Or if you've got some big movie file or, you know, you know, something that you did not mean to have as part of your backup. But, of course, just got included because it was on your machine and time machine works automatically. So. In yeah, our- specifically, I'm sorry, it's uh, so you get a couple options. You get restore file name to and then delete all backups of the file that you have highlighted and then also another choice delete backup oh so you get a few choices in that menu um yeah i wouldn't though i think what you were suggesting you know to begin was to kind of surf into that file structure manually and right. try to get rid of it but uh but yeah that's the i would say the dangerous way it is a much yeah. better way to use menu options because uh, one would assume apple has some idea how to do this properly since it's a menu choice right yeah, and and Al tried this and it worked great for him. So uh, thank you, Al, for for the for asking the question that led to you finding the hint. So there you go. While we were researching Mike's problem, John, you found a couple of of uh, knowledge base articles on the Apple support site that that indicated a couple of good things about uh, time machine best practices, and and maybe we should go through one or two of those here. Yeah, I could. Um so a general strategy to find these sort of things, and, and I found a, a few different references, um, but I'll go to one strategy here. One strategy is to go to apple.com, in this case, uh, apple.com slash support, and then they'll have on the left, not on the right, but on the left of the screen, there's a field, I think it says ask a question. If you type in time machine, 
you'll then get another screen which has a few things. One is a, a general time machine support category, which is uh, pretty good. Um, but then there are also going to be several knowledge base. I'm going to call them knowledge base articles. They're also you know usually docs.info, I think, and it's a like an Apple Tech Note. And there were two that we found that um, were also referenced. Um, I found uh, is it a TUAW? Um, Someone uh, there actually also wrote an article that, uh, that titled "Things That Make Time Machine Cranky," which uh, <laughs> okay, it's kind of cute. And then these are things that can uh, that can make it cranky. So one was um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get get something up here. Okay, so the first one here was um, naming. I'm sorry. So one is uh, okay. Um, after 10 gigs or more of data is backed up to an external disk, time machine may stop backing up. Uh, now, I don't think that's what happened in this case. Right. Um, but but it, what it does mention is that you want to make sure your time machine volume is a certain format. For uh, for the older, I think, Motorola machines, you want to do uh, Apple partition map partition. Right. And for the newer machines, I think they have a scheme here called GUID um, right. on Intel-based Macs. Um, what you don't want is something that's uh, shipped as, a, uh, I think it has an MBR master boot record um, yeah, partition type you don't want that so one potential issue is that if, if the, the it's weird that it would occur after 10 gigabytes but I guess that's a limitation of certain partition schemes um, so that was one of them and then the other one was you want to make sure that you don't have non-alphanumeric characters in the name of the volume which uh, is kind of weird because you know that's that's a known issue with a lot of file systems and all that is having bad characters but you know they have a tech note saying this uh you know that this may be a cause of problems. So, um, so we found a couple things thanks uh, both to you know online source and to Apple's knowledge base. You uh, can always find things in there. Awesome. All right. Well, and and uh, and and one thing it also says: make sure your computer name is not blank, which is interesting. Uh, I didn't realize you could, you could set it as blank, but apparently you can. And that will also break Time Machine. My hope is, of course, that in future revisions to OS X, they uh, they go ahead and and at least warn you if you're going to to follow any of these practices that look Time Machine may or may not work. It, 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 time Machine is great, but I think there are a lot of uh, situations that it was not really fully tested in, and and they so they kind of need to tighten that down and make it more apparent to the user that look these things are not recommended and, and here's why, or, or at least that, that they're not recommended. Yeah. Well, one could say it's a general observation about, uh, uh, leopard. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's true. I, I would, maybe I would, a bit more time could have been, uh, well, but word has it that a, a pretty, you know, substantial update is coming out very shortly. To, that's what uh, they say. A lot of things. Yeah. Uh, hopefully some time machine issues or, uh, uh, places where it's not clear what's happening. All right, so John, and of course not you, but uh, listener John, found another time machine tip that we're going to go ahead and play as an audio comment for you here, and then we're going to get into some, some networking questions, and we'll play one from, from Todd. And So John will take it away. Hi, guys. John from uh, Wisconsin calling. I did just send you the link uh, to uh, feedback at com. The reason for the link is... Um, I didn't know this until I found this on Mac OS Let me rephrase that. Mac OS X Hints. <clears throat> now, I've got an iBook, and this refers to the, to the MacBook Pro. But if you're, uh, if you're just using your battery, the time machine not, will not work. And I did experience the same thing with my iBook G4. I uh, had a heck of a time finding out why a time machine wouldn't back up. And once I plug the battery or plug the AC in, no problem at all. But uh, you guys probably already knew this, but I just want to kind of make you aware of it. And I hope you had a good time with the show. Welcome back, and then now you can sleep a little bit, if that's even possible. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks, John. All right, and off to Todd here. Hey, David, John, Todd in Atlanta, Georgia calling. I have a question for you. I seem to have uh, overheard you say that you extended the range of your network one time, I think while traveling, maybe in a hotel room. But I'm wondering, could I extend the range of my network by using an extra wireless router that I have laying around? I have my uh, DSL network in the basement of my home, and I'm wondering if I use my extra wireless router that I have, could I use it upstairs and extend the range of my network? Just wondering uh, if it can be done. Can you tell me how? I love the show. Thanks. 
Sure, Todd. Uh, John, you want to you want to start with this one here? Um, oh, where should we start? Extending range. All right. Well, it, what I did in the hotel room was I used a, a, a technology called WDS, which is wireless distributed system. Is that right, John? Am I getting that right? Wireless distribution system. Distribution yeah, system. It. Okay. And and the idea was there was a wireless network already in the hotel. And I needed to kind of bounce that signal a little bit further into my room. So uh, using my airport router, I turned on this WDS. And, and uh, John, you, you're, you're going to tell us where. in, But I believe it's in the Internet tab. Is that right, John? Of the. Uh, um, yeah. So most. Uh, so uh, in, in my case, yeah. So you're using Express also. So the Internet tab. So this is where it gets different from normally setting up, which, you know, maybe Ethernet or, or some other option here. But in the Internet tab, you're going to see a selection airport in parentheses WDS. Um, so that's where we start. That says use this WDS protocol. Um, what's really important to specify is the MAC address of the wireless interface of whatever you're talking to. Now, in my case, I have, a, and I think you have one too, Dave, a WRT54G, which I'm having some problems with right now, but that's another story, um, or the current Apple product. Um, but in any case, you need to know know that uh, MAC address. And, and usually you'll get a, a screen where you can search, and that works, of course, if it's broadcasting its name. Oh, um, right. Yeah, in my, in my case... Oh, go ahead, John. Yeah. So, for example, uh, yeah, like so. So, in my case, if you, so, that's the only reason you may want to get the MAC address and actually, you know, go to a computer that's wired to it, or you know, bring up a config screen and get the MAC address and just write it down, just just to be sure. Because, as I mentioned, sometimes you may not be able to automatically retrieve it um, if you've set up your uh, the main base station that's hooked to your internet uh, a certain way. Okay, and then uh, what I did, it, so so yeah, if Todd, you've got you know a wireless base station somewhere in your house, and you want to extend the range, you can take a second base station and and essentially have it bounce the or relay the wireless signal doing this by setting it up as the network connection for WDS. My recommendation, and I think John, you would agree, is if you're going to do this, you don't want the second router doing any more than it has to. So. Uh, let it, you know, set up for WDS, but then go to the Internet tab and turn off the option to distribute IP addresses. And what that'll do is that'll make it it'll essentially put it in what's called bridge mode, where any computer that connects to the uh, the relay base station will just talk. Uh, all that relay will do is relay. It won't try to create its own network. It won't try to create uh, a second set of IP addresses. It'll just bounce connections back and forth, assuming that it's in range of both. And uh, and it'll let the original router do all of the DHCP, the IP address uh, management and all of that stuff makes life a whole lot, a whole lot simpler, a whole lot more straightforward. If, however, uh, there I, there is a better option here and I've, I've done I, I've got a, a similar setup here, but I don't use WDS. I actually have an Ethernet cable running from my main router all the way to where my my relay router is. And the benefit of that is that I'm not relying on a wireless signal to get to my second router. I've got a hardwired connection, so I know that the two are always going to be in touch. And, of course, I'll reference the shows that we've talked about where I've had lightning and it's actually blown up a router on either side. And that's, of course, because there's an Ethernet cable in between. But that aside, uh, it, you know that the connection's always going to exist and you can, you can get a more, a more robust setup. Now, you may or may not, uh, in, in your instance, Todd, be able to, to run an Ethernet cable between them. But if you can run just one, it really allows you the, uh, the ability to, to spread that wireless network amongst your house. I'd still recommend doing the bridge mode, turning off the, the IP address distribution, but, uh, but that's how I do it. You got anything to add to that, John? Um. Well, actually, you and I have both run into it for different reasons. So in my particular setup, uh, which, again, was the uh, airport um, express, uh, the, you know, the smaller uh, unit, and uh, WRT54G, um, in that case, the, uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, the channel. And, and here was the problem I ran into between those two, that particular combination. It wouldn't work. For example, I went on channel six. Now, uh, for some reason, I could only get these two. It may have been the versions of the firmware could only work on channel one. Or for any reason, even when I went to the Linksys um, device, which would show, and actually other base stations should show this too, they will show 
WDS connected devices um, specifically. Yep. Um, and I couldn't see them. It just wouldn't work. And when I switched it to channel one, don't ask me why. Now, you had oh. a, a different problem. Um, I, I think it was a combination of the, of the two products though, because they were from different vendors. Okay. okay. It's not. Yeah, I had a, 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 and I will add something. I've got, uh, pi, of course, Pilot Pete, the uh, <laughs> who unknowingly played a huge role in the uh, the, the story that we told him. What, what was it? No, show number one thirty six. Kind of saved my bacon, if you would. Uh, he just he just reminded me that that there are some routers that won't work if you plug if you are going to do the Ethernet thing. If you plug into the WAN port, i.e. the port that a modem would plug into, it may or may not bridge the connection properly. So y- you can plug into the switch. Like, like, let's say you've got a second router and it's got you know a four-port uh, switch on it. You can plug in, connect the two routers directly into the four ports on the switch and bypass the WAN port. Still, you want to go into bridge mode so that the second router isn't trying to distribute addresses back to the, the first router, and that can cause some confusion too. Uh, but yeah, John, you were, you were saying that I was having some issues with my, my wireless router. The day that I left for Macworld, I'm about, I don't know, 20 minutes away from the house driving toward the airport. So this is Friday afternoon prior to Macworld. And I, I was doing something that of course, John and, and many of you will frown on as I, I stopped, uh, you know, I kind of had to slow down at the Hampton tolls here and I, you know, I, I checked my email, right? So I'm looking at the trio and I see an email from Lisa and she says she can't get on the network. And I'm thinking, oh, you got to be kidding me. You know, I'm going away for eight days here. And why does this have to happen now? So I go through the tolls and I put on the headset and I call Lisa. And she says, yeah, the, the, I, my, my, my power book and my iPhone, neither one will really connect to the network. They kind of connect, but I can't get an address and it's a big disaster. Ah, oh, come on. So I have her reboot the, uh, the, 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 the satellite router, if you will, the one in the house, the, the airport base station, the relay. And then, it, and then it came up and worked fine, and it worked fine all week. But uh, this kept happening, and especially with her iPhone. I noticed it just wouldn't hold on to a connection. I could, if I restarted the iPhone, it would be fine and hold on to a Wi-Fi connection. But after that, once it kind of lost the connection, it wouldn't come back. It would see the network, but it, it just couldn't get an address from it. It just didn't make any sense. And uh, so I opened up uh, your favorite app, John, iStumbler. And I noticed that one of my neighbors has added a wireless network. Now, we're not really that close to most of the neighbors, so I think I know which one it is. But, uh, but somebody had set up a network, and I had my airport base station set as the channel was automatic, which put it on channel 6, which is the default. My neighbor was on channel 6, and I think she was close enough to cause some interference. So I changed the channel to 11. Now, the way we've talked about this before, but the way Wi-Fi channels work is it's really kind of, you have to think of the channel as the, the tip of a pyramid. It is the frequency, it is the middle frequency that can be used for that channel. So channel six probably overlaps a little bit from channels four to channel eight, right? And you can go from channel one to 11. So knowing she was on six and knowing that the office is on channel one, I figured, okay, let's move the house to channel 11 and really let's spread this out. And uh, sure enough, moving it to channel 11, I did that a couple of days ago. Uh, once I figured out what was going on and uh, and it's been great. So if you've got multiple wireless routers in the house, you do want to make sure, uh, especially if you're connecting them via Ethernet and you and you have choices over how the channels are set up, set one all the way at one, set the other one all the way at 11 and they won't interfere with each other or they have less chance of interfering with each other. So that's that's my uh, that's my advice there, John. So you didn't think, you know, paying a visit and saying that that was your channel was the, the way to go in this <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, this is New Hampshire, right? So it's, you know, live for your die. And, okay, we're going to go on a little tangent here. Live for your die. I think it's Colonel John Stark, right? Right? Colonel John Stark coined that phrase. He uh, was a colonel in the, uh, the, 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 whatever. It doesn't, it, it's irrelevant at this point. And, and he was invited to, at the, toward the end of his career, he was invited to go down to Massachusetts for some, uh, ceremony where there were going to be a bunch of these sort of old uh, retired colonel. Am I screwing this up horribly, Peter? Am I pretty close? Okay. Uh, and, and so he, you know, he said, look, it, I'm old. I'm tired. I don't want to go to this thing. So I'm going to send, the, the thing I'm going to send is a toast. And his toast was live free or die. Death is not the worst of all evils. And I may have, I paraphrased the second part, but I think it's pretty close. And so mm-hmm. we in New Hampshire here have the only 
are the only state in the union whose motto is actually a drinking toast, which is actually kind of a cool thing. I thought it's certainly certainly worthy of mention on a Sunday afternoon. I learned this last night. Explains a lot. It does. But anyway, so live for your die. That's right. I, I did grab the pitchfork and Lisa grabbed the shovel and we were walking through the woods and, and uh, over to the, the neighbor's house to uh, to have this conversation with her. And we thought, you know, actually, we could just go ahead and move to Channel 11 and, and maintain peace and harmony here in the uh, in the neighborhood. So so we went ahead and did that instead. I think that was the right move, John. All right. Let's move on to Brent here and get enough with this nonsense. Uh, so Brent writes, I would like to host a small web page on one of my older Macs. When I enable the personal web sharing feature of OS 10 in the sharing preferences panel, the access address is the local non-routable IP of my home network. For example, HTTP colon slash slash one nine two dot one six eight dot whatever dot whatever slash tilde username. My path to the Internet involves a router and a DSL modem. What do I need to do to get my web pages on the internet for family and friends to view? Can this be done using my Mac as a host? So I'm going to turn that around a little bit because I think we're going to have a little conversation after this about using your Mac as a host. So we're going to talk about how to do it and then whether or not you should do it. Um, and so, John, using your Mac as a host can certainly be done. But as as Brent has figured out, the... Uh, the, the the address of your Mac is not accessible from the outside world by default. So you need to tell your router. And what you really need to do is tell your router, look, any any queries that come in on port 80, which is the, the web port, need to be sent to uh, my computer. And and so you need to share the IP, the IP address of your router, the, the, the live IP address, which you can get at whatismyip.com, or you can reference a, an earlier show and use some di- dynamic DNS stuff. But you would still need to give them your IP slash tilde username and then forward that query from your router to your computer. And without getting into all the nitty gritty details of what it would take to do this with even, you know, the five most popular routers out there. I'm going to refer everyone to a site called portforward.com and you tell it what router you have and what you're trying to do in this case, forwarding web. And it will tell you exactly the steps, including with the airport router, how to, how to add a port forward from port 80 on the outside world to port 80 on the inside world. However, John, you had an excellent point uh, that you brought up while we were discussing this ahead of time. So let's, uh, let's have at it. I did. I did. Well, the point is, um, some per or at least one point is some providers may really not want you to be doing that sort of thing. So while it's technically possible, um, running a server could be viewed as a different level of service or costing undue traffic. Um, and, and actually someone brought this up uh, about our, our, our last show where we talked about FTP. Of course, they also want to talk about secure FTP, but that's a future show. Um, right. Your provider may say, either they may block it, and saying, okay, no port 21 for FTP, no port 80 for HTTP, no port 443 for HTTPS. Or they'll just watch you do it and do, uh, I guess, you know, it's known as shaping. And some people have been doing some of that lately. But basically watching your traffic. And if you do too much traffic on a certain port, they'll assume you're being bad. And they'll either charge you more money or, or yell at you or shut off your account. Though I hope they wouldn't go that far. Um, so one way to get around this, in, in addition to... Uh, discouraging uh, people you don't want looking at your stuff. Because from what I can see, um, <clears throat> it wasn't obvious to me how to password. I'm, I'm sure there's a way to password that uh, the the you know web service. Um, nothing jumped out at me. Um, but that's another thing. You may not want everybody to come and look at it. So um, you know that that's another issue. You may want to put it on a different port. Number one, it would make it slightly less obvious since the ports where web services are, are known. Um, or just keep away people that are, you know, just kind of poking around um, just to discourage them. So uh, one thing that I, I want to I would add to that. And, and you're right. Yeah. Putting it on a different port. Again, you want to check your terms of service. Right. And make sure you're not doing some horrible violation. But. Uh, putting it on a different port can be an exercise in the terminal because you'd need to go into the terminal and edit the httpd.conf file and change the port that the uh, web server listens on from port 80 to whatever you want to use. But there is an oh. easy... What's that, John? I, if you set up the port forward exactly. properly, then you wouldn't. So, so I gotta, I'm suggesting you set up the outside port forward to... Uh, outside port to 
be something weird and, and routed to if you're, well, maybe some routers. No, I mean, they should. Uh, every screen I've seen, it lets you go from IP and port outside to IP and port on inside. Maybe there are some that don't, in which case I think that's that's where you were going. Yeah, no, you know, you were hit. You, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. I, I was going to mention exactly what, what you said, where leave the inside, leave your, your Mac answering on port 80 and let your router do the work because it's much easier to reconfigure your router than it is to reconfigure your Mac unless you're really comfortable with the terminal and like editing text files and that sort of thing. But yeah, go, go ahead and just tell your router, look, take incoming connections on, you know, port uh, 996 and redirect those to port 80 on my, you know, on my Mac and boom, you're, you're good to go. So that's uh, that. No, you, you hit it right. You hit the nail right on the head, John. Wow. Our, our first sponsor for this show is uh, is Audio Engine. And of course, they've been sponsors forever. They have a great new product. And I, I love it that we have so many sponsors with products that that we actually find really cool. And uh, this time we're talking about the Audio Engine W1. John, you and I saw this product at Macworld Expo. It's essentially a uh, it's two USB dongles, if you will. And uh, and they uh, they're they're wireless capable speaker connectors so you you can plug one into your mac and then the other you can either plug into your speaker if your speaker has usb power on it like the audio engine a5s do or if you have speakers that aren't made by audio engine or aren't made by a manufacturer with audio with the usb power you've got a it comes with a little power adapter you plug the power adapter into the wall you run a little mini eighth cable from the uh, second from the receiver into the speaker and it powers it doesn't power the speakers it drives the speakers remotely it sends the signal to the speakers wirelessly and the coolest part about the w1 is it does so with so little latency that you can watch a movie on your mac and have the sound broadcast wirelessly to your speakers without any noticeable lag or delay and uh, and that's the audio engine w1 they are uh i believe they're shipping if not by now certainly within the next week or so and you can get that at audioengine.com all right, John, look, we're moving on to our switcher questions, and I think we're going to start with Robert. Robert writes, I'm planning to buy a Mac, so I want to learn as much as I can before I buy it so I can hit the ground running. Uh, here's my question. Are there any issues with having Windows and Apple machines on the same network? I've currently got a Windows desktop and a laptop on my home network. I'd like to replace both with Apple products, but I don't think I can afford to purchase two new computers right now. I currently have Norton Internet Security on both machines, and I found that it really slows down video transmissions. I'd like to get rid of Norton, but I don't want to risk it. I assume if I had all Apple machines, I would not need Norton, right? Even if I replaced both Windows machines with Macs, if someone visited me and connected their Windows machine to my network, would that expose me to security risks? All right, John, you're, you're Mr. Security, so I'm, you, 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 you've got to take this mm -hmm. one. Well, first off, immediately when you type in, when you in, have the two different machines on the same network, they're going to start attacking each other. That, that's, no. That'd be fun if that, no, it wouldn't. <clears throat> so anyway, to get to the point here, um, in general, um, I mean, the, the attacks are pretty specific to a platform, um, except for, and this is more just not a security thing, but a network thing, is that there are cases, because a lot of times you will see some of the Mac software updates, and because it's a OpenBSD-based Unix, you're going to see names of you know a lot of these network services. I would say the only case where you may have a problem between the two platforms is some of these lower-level services where, in a lot of cases, the same C code uh, was actually shared and you know developed for the appropriate platform. And some of the things that come to mind, and there have been attacks for these, um, SMB, which is the uh, Windows Networking Protocol, and even some of the TCP IP attacks uh, from very past, you know, ping of death and things like this. So I would say uh, you may be, um, there may be a problem with network-based more denial of service attacks. As far as, you know, other higher level application attacks like viruses and stuff like that, those things are really platform specific. Um, they'll take that bat in one case that I'm aware of, Dave, and, and maybe you have something to interject. But, you know, like, for example, Word has macro viruses. Um, and because the, the macro language uh, between many versions of Mac and Windows Word is the same, if it works on one, it'll work on the other. <clears throat> so cross-platform applications that share documents and scripts, potentially um, macro viruses are the only one that come to mind. Um, immediately. 
Well, in in Word uh, 2008 actually doesn't have macro support. So the upside of that is that it's not uh, it's not prone to uh, to these attacks. The downside is it's got no macro support and it does. So it does it does some different things, but it doesn't support the old word word macros, which were notoriously uh, open to to these sorts of attacks. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you'll notice that's why I was careful with my wording. <laughs> you were. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all right. So is there is there anything else to talk about Max on the same network? We've got SMB. It really, in, in, in a nutshell, no. Having Windows and Max on the same network is not going to cause any uh, inherent problems that you, you wouldn't already worry about with, uh, with, with, you know, with, with just having any machines on a network. Unless, of course, you're running windows within an emulation environment right in which case now i haven't heard in theory i think this would be really cool but from what i understand talking with the the folks that develop a lot of the emulators is that the emulator is really its own world my thought was that you have this really smart virus or attack which knows its own virtual machine and knows how to escape from the virtual machine and and destroy things outside of that realm but um i'm not aware of any attacks that do that at this point no, I, I think the uh, the emulators are are too robust for for that. They, I think you're right. Yeah. They they do make it. They're they're their own world. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there there are some things. Uh, of course, Pilot Pete mentioned while we were talking about this, John, that you know, if you're running a NAS driver or if you're hanging a hard drive off of an airport uh, base station. You can't have that formatted in journaled mode uh, for it to work properly with Windows machines. You need to, at the very least, do HFS non-journaled. Uh, you know, there, there are some some things you, you will run into some stuff where, you know, getting the two machines to talk to each other isn't quite as simple as it would be to get two Macs to talk to each other. But 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 you're fine. And, and to to answer your your question, Robert, no, you do not need to run. In my opinion, you do not need to run Norton antivirus on your Mac uh, or any antivirus software. I don't run any on mine. I've never regretted that choice. I've never looked back. Um you know, when you're traveling, you, you turn off some sharing stuff. If, if you get a PowerBook or sorry, not a PowerBook, if you get a MacBook or a MacBook Pro or an Air, uh, it, you know, turn off some of the sharing stuff so that when you're connecting to these foreign networks, you're you're more secure. Turn on your firewall. But otherwise, no, I, I, you know, I don't run any antivirus. I, and I, I I hope to never have to. So. That's a, that's my thought on it. You got anything to add before we go on to Vinka's question here, John? Um, we've, I mean, uh, some places, so, so we at, at work run the, uh, antivirus, but only because it's a McAfee product and they do have a cross platform, um, something called EPO, which is more like a management solution where you can, uh, you know, make the remote machine do certain things like, you know, upgrade its virus definitions and scan and things like that. Um, though, yeah, I mean, just the, I, I think the only thing they scan for is really things that are Windows specific. When, when you have the Mac client, it's uh, certainly not doing as much as uh, the PC side. Right. Right. OK, cool. All right. Vinka writes, I'm looking to acquire an LCD flat screen monitor for my MacBook, which is running on Leopard 10.5. But I do not wish to acquire an Apple monitor. I guess that's because he wants to save some money, John. I mean, I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to pay three times for a display. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know of any manufacturers that are Mac compatible? I believe that most LCDs will function on my laptop, but they will not recognize my OS. Also, I used to have a PC. Uh, well, yeah, well, okay, we'll get into that in another show. All right, yeah, so every monitor is Mac compatible. The, the Macs for, especially with your MacBook, and, and even all the PowerBooks, it's been years since Apple has used a proprietary video interface. Uh, now the Mac support DVI and, and with an adapter uh, SVGA, which are the two most common uh, connection platforms, if you will, connection methods for displays. And I, right now on my uh, on the machine in the studio here, I have a really, really cheap StarLogic LCD display, 19 inch. I think I paid about 79 bucks for it. And it shows it's cheap and worth it, uh, but it connects fine and it connects uh, either SVGA or DVI. I've had it connected both ways. It, it works fine. It, it I mean, you get like I said, you get what you pay for, but uh, have no problems hooking it up to uh, to my Mac here. And and so the 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 thing you need to look for on the uh, on any laptop or any computer that you're connecting is with a flat screen display. You want to look at the native resolution of that display and. 
what that means is every display can support all sorts of different resolutions. And by resolutions, I mean how many pixels across versus how many pixels down. On an LCD display, the native resolution is how many lights they've got across and how many lights they've got down. And you want to use, you want to map each light to a pixel that your computer is sending. That will get you the crispest, best picture on the machine. So you need to look at what the display is going to support. And then you need to compare that to what your Mac has and make sure that it's less than the maximum. Now, on a MacBook Pro, you've got two things to think about here. One is the internal uh, resolution, which which is just the resolution of the internal screen, and that's 1280 by 800 right now. And then the external maximum resolution is 1920 by 1200. So you need to make sure you buy a display that supports either 1920 by 1200 or something less than that. And uh, and then that should work uh, in in most cases. And I think, John, you've got you've got some thoughts on that. Yeah, so I have. Um, well, you you pretty much summed it up. Is you want to make sure the specs between the two cards, um, you know, are wildly off because um, there may be cases where your video card, you know, is greater uh, than the monitor. Though a lot of times I found that you know it's smart enough. Like I'm looking here right now is um, in my display control panel. I have right now hooked up to this machine a SyncMaster 191T. It's a Samsung. And when I look in, you know, the display listing, it has all the resolutions that it supports and it knows the greatest resolution. In addition to um, the color syncing, when I when I click on color, it says display profile sync master. It knows yeah. about this display um, through the DVI. And I think you even said I, I didn't think that they did this, but I guess also through the uh, even though it's analog, you know, the uh, SVGA. Um, you know, I guess communicates a little blip to the computer saying, OK, here's my brand and uh yeah, and then the, I, the open, some things about it. I've seen that on Windows machines. I remember, you know, it, it, when I did a lot of Windows consulting, the whole plug and play thing. Once you once you get the video card set up right uh, and you plug the display in, it would actually notice the, the brand and model of the display, even if it was plugged in SVGA, which I thought was, you know, I thought always thought was cool. I mean, it, it's one of those things that it doesn't really matter. But I guess it kind of does if you're picking profiles, if it's got something pre-built, uh, especially if it is an Apple monitor. Apple does build profiles in with the with the OS so it can kind of automatically try and do the best the best color matching and, and that sort of thing for it. So that's uh, that's my thought. We have anything else to talk about here with Vinca before we uh, before we move on to the next thing, John? No. Okay, our second sponsor for this show is Audible at audible.com. And of course, if you go to audible.com slash MacGeekGab, you get a free trial, 14 days of the Audible Listener Gold and one free download. And, and this week we decided to do something different. Of course, Audible has been a sponsor of the show for a very long time. And, uh, and John went and found a book that, uh, that we wanted to talk a little bit about here. And that book, John, is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All right. Um, Originally written by um, uh, Douglas Adams, actually uh, got to run into him at, a, at one of the Macworld shows, you know, did a lot of the, uh, you know, wrote a few games or at least helping the development some games. Yep. But Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, is a, a very funny, it's a science fiction comedy, I guess you could call it, if, uh, you know, kind of a unique category. And it basically starts off with a guy whose house is about to get knocked down and he never got the notice saying it would get knocked down. It then moves on to the planet Earth being about to be demolished by a group who also somehow didn't communicate that fact to the inhabitants of the planet. And basically the main character then goes on a romp with his uh, friend, um, Arthur Dent being the main character Ford prefect is his buddy who writes for the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. And they manage to hitchhike off of the planet before it gets destroyed. And it's just all sorts of crazy adventures about these guys. And, uh, and it's nice to see uh, that in an audio book. Yep. It's and a, it's a, Pretty uh, large uh, book on its own. It's uh, uh, at least a trilogy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so you can you can get that download for free if you use the special link at audible.com/slash/macgeekgab and then search for Hitchhiker's Guide and we'll actually put a link to both of those in the show notes for you. So audible.com/slash/macgeekgab gets you your uh, free book and you can check out Hitchhiker's Guide. Written, and it's actually read. You can listen to a sample, but it's read by a guy with a. Uh, a great English accent. It's not too thick, but it, I, to me, it sounded just perfect. So I, I, I might actually add that one and and re-experience the book that way. So thanks for uh, mm -hmm. thanks for finding that, John. We will move on to Ryan here, and uh, Ryan has a question worthy of some discussion. Hey guys, this is Ryan, and I've been listening to the show for a few weeks now, 
and uh, downloading old episodes and just got to say I love it. Um, I'm calling uh, because I just got the iPod 80 gigabyte classic for Christmas and um, plugged it up the first time into the computer, worked fine, uh, put some music on there. However, the third or fourth time that I uh, hooked it up to the computer, um, a friend of mine told me I could change the name of the iPod and instead of saying Ryan's iPod, I could, you know, call it whatever I wanted. So I tried to do that, I clicked on it, you know, edited it, said it was synchronizing to the iPod, said it was done, so I ejected it. Now, the next time I went to hook it to the computer, um, it took a little while, and iTunes gave me a dialogue that said that they could not recognize this iPod because they couldn't locate the files or something like that. Uh, so after freaking out a little bit because my brand-new iPod wasn't working, um, I tried to hook it up again. This time, the computer did not recognize it, but the iPod itself said that it was hooked up. Uh, in other words, there was the connected screen on the iPod, but the computer wouldn't recognize it. Uh, so iTunes wasn't bringing it up, and I also could not eject it like, say, a flash drive. So I just pulled the plug out of the end. Well, the iPod still said it was connected, so I let it sit, and after a couple minutes, the black um, screen came up with the transparent Apple logo. Uh, so I let it sit for a little while, and finally it just shut off, and I turned it back on, and it was fine. Uh, next time I turned it on, it took me through a whole new um, uh, set of questions about whose iPod was, that type of thing. And so I just um, filled in Ryan's iPod, which was the original name, uh, and it's been working fine ever since. So my question is, is it safe to try and edit the name of the iPod while it's connected? Um, or am I doing something wrong? Um, or should I just let it go? Uh, but anyway, thanks. Um, and if you need to reach. No, we'll talk about it here. All right. Um, you know, I, I've run into issues like this and I've got, I've had, you know, quite a few iPods on my machines as, as they keep getting updated. And one thing I've found consistent to all of them is that when the computer does it sync during the sync, it's fine. And after the sync is totally complete and the computer knows it's done and the iPod knows it's done, everything's fine. But there's that gap, John, during the period where the sync is like wrapping up and the iPod's kind of going through its machinations and the computer's going, its mach going through its machinations that making any changes to the iPod, either changing a setting that would, that would cause the sync to restart, you know, saying, oh, I want to sync this extra playlist or this extra library of photos or in Ryan's case, perhaps changing the name, it, 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 it just tends to, to grind to a halt and, uh, and add to that the fact that I've seen many times where I connect my iPod and the iPod sees it connected just like Ryan saw about it, but iTunes doesn't. If I quit iTunes and let iTunes fully quit and then relaunch iTunes, oftentimes it will see it then. So there's, there's definitely some weirdness. I think it has to do with the, the way the computer is, Seeing the iPod, but not really letting, you know, if it's not set to be in disk mode, uh, it, you know, it, it's kind of hiding it from the computer at the same time. And iTunes is doing all this extra management of this thing that's a disk, but it wants to hide the fact that it's a disk. And it gets really confusing. I've thought often maybe just turning on disk mode and, and having that, you know, be the uh, the default on my iPods might might make this simpler, but I don't know. So my advice is if you're going to make changes don't do it right after you think a sync has finished. Let a sync finish, let it go through, let it sit five minutes even, then make a change. So that, that's my, uh, that's my thought on that, John. I, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but that's, that's kind of where I, where I fall on it. <laughs> Actually, my suggestion would be to turn off this mode, but uh... <laughs> you see, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Because I've seen that cause problems sometimes. Now, where I think that could cause problems, we, we were talking about this before, is that, um, you know, make sure you're not running something like Parallels. Um, Parallels seems to be very aggressive about grabbing devices before the Mac OS sees them. Yep. Um, and other emulators uh, maybe like that, too. Now, I have run into a case. Uh, I, I did have a... I, I thought I wouldn't be able to figure this one out. It was... Um, uh, a friend had given me his uh, Nano, and I think it was... Uh, it, it got disconnected. Somebody tripped over a cable while it was syncing, and all okay. of a sudden... It would immediately, the, the symptoms sound similar. You plug it in, it would immediately say, 
connected, but it wouldn't show up in the computer at all. It wouldn't show up in iTunes. It would. I think you could see it through like the USB diagnostics that there was something there. And in that case, I actually had to do a hard reset. There's a uh, magic hand wave. Uh, it's different for the different generations of iPods, though I found something we can link to it where there's a, a special key combination that'll totally wipe the thing out. Um, there are some combinations that, that where it's not totally clearing out, but I, I had to one case do a hard reset, okay. and then all of a sudden the Mac was very happy with it. Yeah, if you've got a link to that, John, that would be a great thing to have in the show notes. I I I know that such a thing exists, but I don't know it off the top of my head either. You know, that's it's one of those times. <laughs> I had to do it once for my wife, and we were we were out somewhere, and I actually just called Chris Breen because I know he's like Mister iPod, and mm-hmm. I felt kind of bad because I was bugging him at his house on like a Saturday afternoon, but he gave me the magic hand wave and, and off and off we went. So, uh, so that's the, uh, yeah. That's Most of the latest ones, it's the center button and the up button, um, is okay. a hard reset. Now I thought that was only a hard reboot. I didn't think that there was a way I, I didn't, that doesn't wipe the iPod though. You've got to go into that diagnostic mode, right? To, to do that. Well, I think, I'm sorry, I think what we had to do is doing that, then the machine would see it, and then we were able okay. to, to progress from that point. But, okay. um, but yeah, short of that, do it, trying to do anything from the computer was not successful. Doing a hard reset uh, got it into a state where the, the computer was then able to interact with it. Sorry, should have been a... No, that's all right. You were having some weird Skype, sure. uh, Skype strangeness, too. So we'll bring the band in. We, we've mm-hmm. been at this long enough today as it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, and we'll turn Pete's mic up because you know why not? God, I'm having all kind of weird audio issues. I got to reboot this machine. You know, I talked about that at, at my session at MacWorld. You got to reboot every couple of weeks. This machine's been up for ten days. It's not that long, but it's doing some hmm. funky stuff. So, I don't know. Right into the disc for recording the audio, reading from the disc. I'm getting all kinds of weird bounces here. I hope you folks don't hear it. I hope it, it's actually smoother than that. Anything else to add here, John? We're done. We're done. Yeah, we are done. It's a long show. All right. Uh, let's, let's, yeah, there's another jump in the audio. All right. The podcast marketplace for this month includes the A5 and A2 desktop speakers and, of course, the A1 or the W1 from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software. Uh, one free download from audible.com as long as you use the special link. PDF pen from Smile on my Mac. And, uh, of course, Harmon-E-Travel for all your travel needs. You know, uh, we were looking at iTunes comments this week. Folks, we are at 96 iTunes comments. We'd love um, to be up to 100 by next week. So you got an extra day because we're doing the show on Sunday. Can we can we be up to 100? I mean, it only takes four of you, right? There, I know there's more than four of you out there that haven't done iTunes comments. Can we can we get four and, and, and reach triple digits? It would actually mean a lot to John and I. I, th- I think it'd be actually pretty cool. So what do you think, John? You got anything to say about those iTunes comments? Love them. Love them. We love them when they're polite. They don't have to be favorable. But, you know, I, you can be polite and, and unfavorable if, if you have some, some negative criticism uh, of the show. That, that's fine. But uh, please, please. All right, look. This this computer's jumping all over the place. I don't know what's going on. It's because the audio is running, here. I think. It's too. You are? All right. Uh, hopefully Michael Johnston won't have any computer problems and he'll be able to convert first to AAC. He's, of course, at iPhoneAlley.com. Let's get out of here. No swap, no nothing. No reason for that, John. All right, don't don't get caught. I thought you were caught. Made up.